Mrs. Spent opened the door a crack. Yes? I'm a friend of... Carrot hesitated, wondering if Fred would have given his real name. Uh, big fat man, um, suit doesn't fit. The one who goes around with the sex maniac. Pardon? Skinny little twerp dresses like a clown. They said you'd have a room, said Carrot desperately. They've got it, said Mrs. Spent, trying to shut the door. They said I could use it. No subletting. They said I should pay you two dollars. The pressure of the door was released a little. On top of what they paid, said Mrs. Spent, of course. Well, she looked Carrot up and down and sniffed. All right, what shift are you on? Sorry? You're a watchman, right? Er, uh, Carrot hesitated and then raised his voice. No, I am not a watchman. Ha, 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 ha. You think I'm a watchman? Do I look like a watchman? Yes, you do, said Mrs. Spent. You're Captain Carrot. I've seen you walking about the town. Still, I suppose even coppers have to sleep somewhere. On the roof, Angua rolled her eyes. No women, no cooking, no music, no pets, said Mrs. Spent as she led the way up the creaking stairs. Angua waited in the dark until she heard the window open. She's gone, Carrot hissed. There's glass on the tiles out here, just like Fred reported, said Angua, as she swung herself over the sill. Inside the room, she took a deep breath and shut her eyes. First, she had to forget the smell of carrot, anxious sweat, soap, the lingering hints of armour polish. And Fred Colon, all perspiration with a hint of beer, and then the odd ointment Nobby used for his skin condition, and the smells of feet, bodies, clothes, polish, fingernails. After an hour, it was possible for the eye of the nose to see someone walk across the room, frozen in time by their smell. But after a day, smells crisscrossed and entangled. You had to take them apart, remove the familiar pieces, and what you had left... Oh, they're so mixed up. All right, all right, said Carrot soothingly. At least three people, but I think one of them is Ossie. It's stronger round the bed and... She opened her eyes wide and looked down at the floor. Somewhere here. What? What is? Angua crouched down with her nose just above the floorboards. I can smell it, but I can't see it. A knife appeared in front of her. Carrot got down on his knees and ran the blade along the dust-filled crack between the floorboards. Something splintery and brown popped up. It had been trodden on and rolled underfoot, but at this distance even Carrot could pick up traces of the clove smell. Do you think... Ossie made a lot of apple pies, he whispered. No cooking, remember, said Angua, and grinned. There's something else. Carrot levered out more dirt and dust. In it, something glittered. Fred said all the glass was outside, didn't he? Yes. Well, supposing we assume that someone didn't pick up all the bits when they broke in. For someone that doesn't like lying, Carrot, you can be quite devious, you know. Just logical. There's glass outside the window, but all that means is that there is glass outside the window. Commander Vimes always says there's no such things as clues. It's how you look at them. You think someone broke in and then carefully put the glass outside? Could be. Carrot? Why are we whispering? No women, remember? And no pets, said Angua. So she's got me coming and going. 
Don't look like that, she added when she saw his face. It's only bad taste if someone else says it. I'm allowed. Carrot scratched up some more glass fragments. Angua looked under the bed and pulled out the battered magazines. Ye gods, do people really read this stuff, she said, flicking through bows and ammo. Testing the Loxley Reflex 7 a whole lot of bow. Footsore, we test the ten best caltrops. And what's this magazine? Warrior of Fortune. There's always little wars somewhere, said Carrot, pulling out the box of money. But will you look at the size of this axe here? Get a head, get a burly and strong-in-the-arm street sweeper, and win by a neck. Well, it must be true what they say about men who like big weapons. And that is, said Carrot, lifting the lid of the box. She looked up at the top of his head. As always, Carrot radiated innocence like a small sun. But he'd, they'd, surely he... They, uh, they're rather small, she said. Oh, that's true, said Carrot, picking up some of the Clatchian coins. Look at dwarfs, never happier than with a chopper the same size as them. And Nobby's fascinated by weapons, and he's practically dwarf-sized. Um... Technically, Angua was sure she knew Carrot better than anyone else. She was pretty sure he cared a lot for her. He seldom said so, he just assumed that she knew. She'd known other men, although turning into a wolf for part of the month was one of those little flaws that could put any normal man off, and up until Carrot always had. And she knew the sort of things men said in what might be called the heat of the moment and then forgot. But when Carrot said things you knew that he felt that everything was now settled until further notice. So if she made any comment, he'd be genuinely surprised that she'd forgotten what it was he had said and would probably quote date and time. And yet all the time there was this feeling that the greater part of him was always deep, deep inside, looking out. No one could be so simple, no one could be so creatively dumb without being very intelligent. It was like being an actor, only a very good actor was any good at being a bad actor. Rather a lonely person, our Nobby, said Carrot. Well, yes, but I'm sure he'll find the right person for him, Carrot added cheerfully. Probably in a bottle, said Angua to herself. She remembered the conversation with him. It was a terrible thing to think, but there was something itchy about the thought of Nobby being allowed in the gene pool, even at the shallow end. You know, these coins are odd, said Carrot. How do you mean? said Angua, grateful for the distraction. Why would he be paid in Clatchian walls? He wouldn't be able to spend them here, and the money changers don't give very good rates. Carrot tossed a coin in the air and caught it. When we were leaving, Mr Vimes said to me, make sure you find the bunch of dates and the camel hidden under the pillow. I think I know what he meant. Sand on the floor, said Angua. Now isn't that an obvious clue? You can tell they were Clatchians because of the sand in their sandals. But these clothes, Carrot prodded the little bud, it's not as if it's a common habit even among Clatchians. That's not a very obvious clue, is it? It smells newer, said Angua. I'd say he was here last night. After Ossie was dead? Yes. Why? How should I know? What kind of name is 71-hour Ahmed, said Angua. Carrot shrugged. I don't know. I think Mr Vimes thinks that someone in Ankh Morpork wants us to believe that Clatchians paid to have the prince killed. That sounds nasty, but logical, but I don't understand why a real Clatchian would get involved. Their eyes met. 
politics, they said together. For enough money, a lot of people would do anything, said Angua. There was a sudden and ferocious knocking at the door. Have you got someone in there? said Mrs. Spent. Out of the window, said Carrot. Why don't I just stay and rip her throat out, said Angua. All right, all right, it was a joke, all right, she said, swinging her legs over the sill. Ankh Morpork no longer had a fire brigade. The citizens had a rather disturbingly direct way of thinking at times, and it didn't take long for people to see the rather obvious flaw in paying a group of people by the number of fires they put out. The penny really dropped shortly after Charcoal Tuesday. Since then, they had relied on the good old principle of enlightened self-interest. People living close to a burning building did their best to douse the fire because the thatch they saved might be their own. But the crowd watching the burning embassy were doing so in a hollow-eyed, distant way, as if it was all taking place on some distant planet. They moved aside automatically as Vimes elbowed his way through to the space in front of the gates. Flames were already licking from every ground-floor window, and they could make out scurrying silhouettes in the flickering light. He turned to the crowd. Come on, what's up with you? Get a bucket chain going. It's their bloody embassy, said a voice. Yes, clatchy and soil, right? Can't go on clatchy and soil. That'd be an invasion, that would. They wouldn't let us, said a small boy holding a bucket. Vimes looked at the embassy gateway. There were a couple of guards. Their worried glances kept going back from the fire behind them to the crowd in front. They were nervous men, but it was much worse than that, because they were nervous men holding big swords. He advanced on them, trying to smile, and holding his badge out in front of him. It had a shield on it. It was not a very big shield. Commander Vimes, Ankh Morpork City Watch, he said, in what he hoped was a helpful and friendly voice. A guard waved him away. <laughs> You'll be off. Ah, said Vimes. He looked down at the cobbles of the gateway and then back up at the guard. Somewhere in the flames, someone was screaming. You, come here. You see this? He shouted at the guard, pointing down. The man took a hesitant step forward. That's Ankh Morpork soil down there, my friend, said Vimes, and you're standing on it and you're obstructing me in my... He rammed his fist as hard as he could into the guard's stomach. Duty! He was already kicking out as the other guard rushed him. He caught him on the knee. Something went click. It felt like Vimes's own ankle. Cursing and limping slightly, he ran on into the embassy and caught a scurrying man by his robe. Are there still people in there? Are there people in there? The man gave Vimes a panicky look. The armfuls of paper he'd been carrying spilled onto the ground. Someone else grabbed his shoulder. Can you climb, Mr Vimes? Who are you? The newcomer turned to the cowering paper carrier and struck him heavily across the face. Rescuer of paper? As the man fell back, his turban was snatched from his head. This way! The figure plunged off through the smoke. Vimes hurried after him until they reached a wall with a drainpipe attached. How did you... Up! Up! Vimes put one foot in the man's cupped hands, managed to get the other one on a bracket and forced himself upwards. Hurry! He managed to half-climb, half-pull himself up the pipe, little fireworks of pain exploding up and down his leg as he reached a parapet and hauled himself over. The other man rose behind him as if he'd run up the wall. There was a strip of cloth hiding the lower half of his face. He thrust another strip towards Vimes. Across your nose and mouth, he commanded, for the smoke. It was boiling across the roof. Beside Vimes, a chimney pot gushed a roaring tongue of flame. The rest of the unwound turban was thrust into his hands. You take this side, I'll take the other, said the apparition, and darted away again into the smoke. But who... 
Vimes could feel the heat through his boots. He edged away across the roof and heard the shouting coming from below. When he leaned over the edge here, he could see the window some way below him. Someone has smashed a pane because a hand was waving. There was more commotion down in the courtyard. Amid a press of figures, he could make out the huge shape of Constable Dorfel, a golem, and quite definitely fireproof. But Dorfel was bad enough at stairs as it was. There weren't many that could take the weight. The hand in the smoke stopped waving. Vimes looked down again. Can you fly, Mr Vimes? He looked at the chimney, belching flame. He looked at the unwound turban. A lot of Sam Vimes's brain had shut down, although the bits relaying the twinges of pain from his legs were operating with distressing efficiency. But there were still some thoughts operating down around the core, and they delivered for his consideration the insight, tough-looking cloth. He looked back at the chimney. It looked stout enough. The window was about six feet below. Vimes began to move automatically. So, purely theoretically, if a man were to wrap one end of the cloth round the belching stack like this, and pay it out like this, and lower himself over the parapet like this, and kick himself away from the wall like this, then, when he swung back again, his feet ought to be able to smash his way through the other panes of the window like this. A cart squeaked along the wet street. Its progress was erratic, because no two of its wheels were the same size, so it rocked and wobbled and skidded and probably involved more effort to pull than it saved overall, especially since its contents appeared to be rubbish. But then so did its owner, who was about the size of a man, but bent almost double and was covered with hair or rags or quite possibly a matted mixture of both that was so felted and unwashed that small plants had taken root on it. If the thing had stopped walking and crouched down, it would have given an astonishingly good impression of a long-neglected compost heap. As it walked along, it snuffled. A foot was stuck out to impede its progress. "'Good evening, Stooley,' said Carrot as the cart halted. The heap stopped. Part of it tilted upwards. "'Get off,' it muttered from somewhere in the thatch. "'Now, now, Stooley, let's help one another, shall we? You help me and I'll help you.' "'Bugger off, Captain.' "'Will you tell me things I want to know?' said Carrot and I won't search your cart. I hate gnolls, said Angua. They smell awful. Oh, that's hardly fair. The streets would be a lot dirtier without you and yours, eh, Stooley? said Carrot, still speaking quite pleasantly. You pick up this, you pick up that. Maybe bash it against a wall until it stops struggling. It's <laughs> a vile accuracy, said the gnoll. There was a bubbling noise that might have been a chuckle. "'So I'm hearing you might know where Snowy Slopes is these days,' said Carrot. <laughs> "'Fine.' Carrot produced a three-tined garden fork and walked round to the cart, which dripped. "'Nothing about, about,' said the gnoll quickly. "'Yes,' said Carrot, fork poised. "'Nothing about in the sweet shop, in money trip lane.' The one with the rooms to let sign. Right. Well done. Thank you for being a good citizen, said Carrot. Incidentally, we passed a dead seagull on the way here. It's in Brewer Street. Bet if you hurried, you could beat the rush. Hut diggity, snuffled the gnoll. The cart started to judder forward. The watchman watched it lurch and scrape around the corner. They're good fellows at heart, said Carrot. I think it says a lot for the spirit of tolerance in this city that even gnolls can call it home. They turn my stomach, said Angua as they set off again. That one had plants growing on him. 
Mr Vimes says we ought to do something for them, said Carrot. All heart, that man. With a flamethrower, he says. Wouldn't work. Too soggy. Has anyone ever really found out what they eat? It's better to think of them as cleaners. You certainly don't see as much rubbish and dead animals on the streets as you used to. Yes, but have you ever seen a ganol with a brush and a shovel? Well, that's society for you, I'm afraid, said Carrot. Everything is dumped on the people below until you find someone who's prepared to eat it. That's what Mr Vimes says. Yes, said Angua. They walked in silence for a while, and then she said, You care a lot about what Mr Vimes says, don't you? He is a fine officer and an example to us all. And you've never thought of getting a job in Quirm or somewhere, have you? The other cities are head-hunting Ankh Morpork watchmen now. What? Leave Ankh Morpork? The tone of voice included the answer. No, I suppose not, said Angua sadly. Anyway, I don't know what Mr Vimes would do without me running around all the time. It's a point of view, certainly, said Angua. It wasn't far to Money Trap Lane. It was in a ghetto of what Lord Rust would probably call skilled artisans, the people too low down the social scale to be movers and shakers, but slightly too high to be easily moved or shook. The sanders and polishers, generally. The people who hadn't got very much but were proud even of that. There were little clues, shiny house numbers for a start, and on the walls of houses that were effectively just one long continuous row, after centuries of building and inbuilding, very careful boundaries in the paint where people had brushed up to the very border of their property and not a gnat's blink to each side. Carrot always said it showed the people were the kind who instinctively realised that civilization was based on a shared respect for ownership. Angua thought they were just tight little bastards who'd sell you the time of day. Carrot walked noiselessly down the alley beside the sweet shop. There was a rough wooden staircase going up to the first floor. He pointed silently to the midden below it. It seemed to consist almost entirely of bottles. Big drinker? Angua mouthed. Carrot shook his head. She crouched down and looked at the labels, but her nose was already giving her a hint. Dibbler's homeopathic shampoo. Mere and Stingbat's herbal wash with herbs. Rinse and run scalp tonic with extra herbs. There were others. Herbs, she thought. Chuck a handful of weeds in the pot and you've got herbs. Carrot was starting up the stairs when she put her hand on his shoulder. There was another smell. It was the one that drove through all the other scents of the streets like a spear. It was one that a werewolf's nose is particularly attuned to. He nodded and went carefully to the door. Then he pointed down. There was a stain under the gap. Carrot drew his sword and kicked the door open. Daisyville Slopes hadn't taken his condition lightly. Bottles of all shapes and colours occupied most flat surfaces, giving testimony to the alchemist's art and humanity's optimism. The suds of his latest experiment were still in a bowl on the table, and his body on the floor had a towel around his neck. The watchman looked down at it. Snowy had cleaned, washed, and gone. I think we can say life is extinct, said Carrot. Yuck, said Angua. She grabbed the open shampoo bottle and sniffed deeply. The sickly scent of marinated herbs assailed her sinuses, but anything was better than the sharp, beguiling smell of blood. "'I wonder where his head is at,' said Carrot, in a determinedly matter-of-fact voice. "'Oh, it's rolled over there. What's the horrible smell?' "'This,' Angua flourished the shampoo. Four dollars a bottle, it says. Shit!' 
Angua took another deep sniff at the herbal goo to drown out the call of the wolf. Doesn't look as if they stole anything, said Carrot, unless they were very neat. What's the matter? Don't ask. She managed to get a window open and sucked down great draughts of comparatively fresh air while Carrot went through the corpse's pockets. Er, uh, you can't tell if there's a clove around, can you? he said. Carrot, please, this is a room with blood all over the floor. Have you any idea? Excuse me. She rushed out and down the steps. The alley had the generic smell of all alleys everywhere, overlaid on the basic all-embracing smell of the city. But at least it didn't make your hair grow and your teeth try to lengthen. She leaned against the wall and fought for control. Shampoo? She could have saved Snowy a hell of a lot of money with just one careful bite. Then he'd know all about a really bad hair day. Carrot came down a couple of minutes later, locking the door behind him. Are you feeling better? A bit. There was something else, said Carrot, looking thoughtful. I think he wrote a note before he died, but it's all rather odd. He waved in the air what looked like a cheap notepad. This needs careful looking at. He shook his head. Poor old Snowy. He was a killer. Yes, but that's a nasty way to die. Decapitation? With a very sharp sword, by the look of it. I can think of worse. Yes, but I can't help thinking that if only the chap had better hair or had found the right shampoo at an early age, he'd have led a different life. Well, at least he won't have to worry about dandruff any more. That was a little tasteless. Sorry, but you know how blood makes me tense. Your hair always looks amazing, said Carrot, changing the subject, with Angua thought unusual tact. I don't know what you use, but it's a shame he never tried it. I doubt he went to the right shop, said Angua. It says, for a glossy coat, on the bottles I usually buy. What's the matter? Can you smell smoke, said Carrot. Carrot, it's going to be five minutes before I can smell anything, except... But he was staring past her at the big red glow in the sky. Vimes coughed, and then coughed some more, and eventually opened his streaming eyes in the confident expectation of seeing his own lungs in front of him. Glass of water, Mr. Vimes? Vimes peered through the tears at the shifting shape of Fred Colon. Thanks, Fred. What's the horrible burning smell? It's you, sir. Vimes was sitting on a low wall outside the wreck of the embassy. Cool air washed around him. He felt like underdone beef. The heat was radiating off him. You was passed on for a while there, sir, said Sergeant Colon, helpfully. But everyone saw you swing in that window, sir, and you threw that woman out for detritus to catch. That'll be a feather in your cap and no mistake, sir. I bet the raghead, uh, I bet the uh, Clatchians'll be giving you the order of the camel or something for this night's work, sir. Colon beamed, bursting with pride by association. A feather in my cap, murmured Vimes. He undid his helmet and with a certain amount of exhausted delight saw that every single plume had been burnt to a stub. He blinked slowly. What about the man, Fred? Did he get out? What man? There was... Vimes blinked again. Various parts of his body, aware that he hadn't been taking calls, were ringing in to complain. There had been some man. Vimes had landed on a bed or something, and there was a woman clutching at him, and he had smashed out at what was left of the window, seen the big, broad and above all strong arms of detritus down below, and had thrown her out as politely as the circumstances allowed. 
Then the man from the roof had come out of the smoke again, carrying another figure over his shoulder, screaming something at him, and beckoned him to follow, and then the floor had given way. There were two other people in there, he said, coughing again. They didn't get out the front way then, said Colin. How did I get out, said Vimes. Oh, Dorfel was stamping on the fire below, sir. Very handy, a ceramic constable. You landed right on him, so of course he stopped what he was doing and brought you out. It's going to be handshakes and buns all round in the morning, sir. There weren't any right now, Vimes noted. There were still plenty of people around, carrying bundles, putting out small fires, arguing with one another, but there was a big hole where the congratulating the hero of the hour should have been. Oh, everyone's always a bit preoccupied after something like this, sir, said Colin, as if reading his thoughts. I think I'll have a nice cold bath, said Vimes to the world in general, and then some sleep. Sybil's got some wonderful ointment for burns. Oh, hello, you two. We saw the fire, Carrot began running up. Is it all over? Mr. Vimes saved the day, said Sergeant Colin excitedly. Just went straight in and saved everyone in the finest tradition of the watch. Fred, said Vimes wearily. Yes, sir. Fred, the finest tradition of the watch, is having a quiet smoke somewhere out of the wind at 3am. Let's not get carried away, eh? Colin looked crestfallen. Well, he began. Vimes staggered to his feet and patted his sergeant on the back. Oh, all right, it's a tradition, he conceded. You can do the next one, Fred. And now, he steadied himself as he stood up, I'm going down to the yard to write my report. You're covered in ash and you're swaying, said Carrot. I should just get on home, sir. Oh, no, said Vimes. Got to do the paperwork. Anyone know the time? Bingly, 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 beep, said a cheerful voice from his pocket. Damn, said Vimes, but it was too late. It is, said the voice, which had the squeaky, friendly quality that begs to be strangled. About nine-ish. Nine-ish? Yep, nine-ish. Precisely about nine-ish. Vimes rolled his eyes. Precisely about nine-ish, he said, pulling a small box out of his pocket and opening the lid. The demon inside gave him an angry look. Yesterday you said, it said, that if I, and I quote, didn't stop all that 8.56 and 6 seconds precisely business, I would be looking at a hammer from below. And when I said, Mr. Insert Name Here, that this would invalidate my warranty, you said that I could take my warranty and shove... I thought you'd lost that thing, said Carrot. Ha! said the disorganiser. Really? You thought he did? I don't call putting something in your trouser pockets just before they go into the wash losing it. That was an accident, muttered Vimes. Oh! Oh! and dropping me in the dragon's feeding bowl. That was accidental too, was it? The demon mumbled to itself for a moment and then said, Anyway, do you want to know your appointments for this evening? Vimes looked at the smouldering wreckage of the embassy. Do tell, he said. You don't have any, said the demon sulkily. You haven't told me any. You see, said Vimes, that's what drives me livid. Why should I have to tell you... Why didn't you tell me, eight-ish, break up riot at mundane meals and stop detritus shooting people, eh? You didn't tell me to tell you. I didn't, know, And that's how real life works. How can I tell you to warn me about things that no one knows are going to happen? If you were any good, that'd be your job. 
He writes in the manual, said the demon nastily. Did you know that, everybody? He writes in the manual. Well, of course, I make notes. He's actually sneakily trying to keep his diary in the manual so his wife won't find out he's never bothered to learn how to use me, said the demon. What about the Vimes manual, then? snapped Vimes. I notice you've never bothered to learn how to use me. The demon hesitated. Humans come with a manual, it said. It'd be a damn good idea, said Vimes. True, murmured Angua. It could say things like chapter one, bingly, bingly, beep, and other damn fool things to spring on people at six in the morning, said Vimes, his eyes wild. And troubleshooting. My owner keeps trying to drop me in the privy. What am I doing wrong? And Carrot patted him gently on the back. I should sign off now, sir, he said gently. It's been a busy few days. Vimes rubbed his forehead. I dare say I could do with the rest, he said. Come on, there's nothing more to see here. Let's go home. I thought you said you weren't going, Carrot began, but Vimes's mind was already scolding him. I meant the yard, of course, he said. I'll go home afterwards. A ball of lamplight floated through the Ramkin library, drifting across the shelves of huge leather-bound books. Many of them had never been read, Sybil knew. Various ancestors had simply ordered them from the engravers and put them on the shelves because a library was something you had to have, don't you know, like a stable yard and a servant's wing and some ghastly landscaping mistake created by bloody stupid Johnson, although in the latter case her grandfather had shot the man before he could do any real damage. She held the lamp higher. Ramkins looked down their noses at her from their frames through the brown varnish of the centuries. Portraits were another thing that had been collected out of unregarded habit. Most of them were men. They were invariably in armour and always on horseback, and every single one of them had fought the sworn enemies of Ankh Morpork. In recent times this had been quite difficult, and her grandfather, for example, had to lead an expedition all the way to Hawonderland in order to find some sworn enemies, although there was an adequate supply and a lot of swearing by the time he left. Earlier, of course, it had been a lot easier... Ramkin regiments had fought the city's enemies all over the Stowe Plains and had inflicted heroic casualties, quite often on people in the opposing armies. It is a long-cherished tradition among a certain type of military thinker that huge casualties are the main thing. If they're on the other side, then this is a valuable bonus. There were a few women among the sitters, none of them holding anything heavier than a glove or a small pet dragon. Their job had largely been to roll bandages and await the return of their husbands with, she likes to think, resolution and fortitude and a general hope that said husbands would return with as many of their bits as possible. The point was, though, that they never thought about it. There was a war and off they went. If there wasn't a war, they looked for one. They didn't even use words like duty. It was all built in, at bone level. She sighed. It was all so difficult these days, and Lady Sybil came from a class that was not used to difficulty, or at least the kind that couldn't be sorted out by shouting at a servant. Five hundred years ago, one of her ancestors had cut off a Clatchian's head in battle and had brought it home on a pole, and no one thought any the worse of him, given what the Clatchians would have cut off if they'd caught him. That seemed straightforward. You fought them, they fought you. Everyone knew the rules, and if you got your head cut off, you jolly well didn't blub about it afterwards. Certainly things were better now, but they were just more difficult. 
And of course some of those antique husbands were away for months or years at a time, and for them wives and families were pretty much like the library and stable yard and the Johnson exploding pagoda. You got them sorted out and then didn't think much about it. At least Sam was home every day. Well, most days. Every night, anyway. Well, part of most nights, certainly. At least they ate meals together. Well, most meals. Well, at least they made a start on most meals. Well, at least she knew he was never very far away, just somewhere where he was trying to do too much and run too fast and people were trying to kill him. All in all, she considered she was jolly lucky. Vimes stared at Carrot, who was standing in front of his desk. So, what does all that add up to, he said. The man we know didn't get the prince is dead. The man who probably did is dead. Someone tried very clumsily to make it look as if Ossie was paid by the Clatchians. Okay, I can see why someone might want to do that. That's what Fred calls politics. They get Snowy to do the real business, and he helps poor dumb Ossie, who's there to take the fall, and then the watch proves that Ossie was in the pay of the Clatchians, and that's another reason for fighting. And Snowy just slopes off. Only someone cured his dandruff for him. After he'd written something, sir, said Carrot. Ah, yes. Vimes looked at the notepad retrieved from Snowy's room. It was a crude affair, the wads of mismatched bits of scrap that the engravers sold off cheaply. He sniffed at it. Soap on the edges, he said. His new shampoo, said Carrot. First time he'd used it. How do you know? We looked at all the bottles on the heap, sir. Hmm. Looks like fresh blood here at the spine where they're stitched together. His, sir, said Angua. Vimes nodded. You never argued with Angua about blood. But none of the actual pages have blood on them, said Vimes, which is a bit odd. Messy business, decapitation. People tend to uh, spray. So the top page has been taken away, sir, said Carrot, grinning and nodding. But that's not the funny part, sir. See if you can guess, sir. Vimes glared at him and then moved the lamp closer. Very faint impression of writing on the top page, he muttered. Can't make it out. We can't either, sir. We know he wrote in pencil, sir. There was one on the table. Very faint traces, said Vimes. Blokes like Snowy write as though they're chipping stone. He flicked the notebook. Someone tore out not just the page he'd written on, but several below it as well. Clever, eh, sir? Everyone knows you can read the suspicious note by looking at the marks on the page below, said Vimes. He tossed the book on the table again. Hmm. There's a message there, yes. Perhaps he was blackmailing whoever's behind all this, said Angua. That's not his style, said Vimes. No, what I meant was... There was a knock on the door, and Fred Colon entered. Bring you a mug of coffee, he said, and there's a bunch of what, uh, clutchins to see you downstairs, Mr. Vimes. Probably come to give you a medal and gabble at you in their lingo. And if you're on for late supper, Mrs. Gorriff's doing goat and rice and foreign gravy. I suppose I'd better go down and see them, said Vimes, but I haven't even had time for a wash. That's evidence of your heroic endeavours said Colon stoutly. Oh, all right. Unease began about halfway down the stairs. 
Vimes had never run into a group of citizens wishing to give him a medal, and so he did not have a lot of experience on this score, but the group waiting for him in a tight cluster near the sergeant's desk did not look like a committee of welcome. They were Clatchian. At least they were wearing foreign-looking clothes, and one or two of them had caught more sun than you generally got in Ankh-Morpork. The feeling crept over Vimes that Clatch was a very big place in which his city and the whole of the Stowe Plains would be lost, and so there must be room in it for all kinds of peoples, including this short chap in the red fez who was practically vibrating with indignation. "'Are you the man Vimes?' the enfezed one demanded. "'Well, I'm Commander Vimes. We demand the release of the Gaudi family, and we won't take any excuses!' Vimes blinked. "'Release? You have locked them up and confiscated their shop!' Vimes stared at the man, and then he looked across the room at Sergeant Detritus. "'Where did you put the family, Sergeant?' Detritus saluted. "'In the cell, sir!' "'Aha!' said the man in the fez. "'You admit it!' "'Excuse me, who are you?' said Vimes, blinking with tiredness. "'I don't have to tell you, and you can't beat it out of me,' said the man, sticking out his chest. "'Oh, thank you for telling me,' said Vimes. "'I do hate wasted effort.' "'Oh, hello, Mr. Wazir,' said Carrot, appearing behind Vimes. "'Did you get the note about that book?' There was one of those silences that happen when everyone has to reprogram their faces. Then Vimes said, "'What?' "'Mr. Wazir sells books in Widdy Street,' said Carrot. "'Only I asked him for some books on Clatch, you see, "'and one of the ones he gave me was The Perfumed Allotment, "'or The Garden of Delights, "'and I didn't mind because the Clatchians invented gardens, sir, "'so I thought it might be a very useful cultural insight. "'Get inside the Clatchian mind, as it were. "'Only it, um, um, well, it wasn't about gardening. Uh, he started to blush. "'Yes, yes, all right. Bring it back if you like.' said Mr. Wazir, looking a little derailed. I just thought you ought to know, in case you hadn't, in case you sold, well, it, it, it could shock the impressionable, you know, a book like that. Yes, fine. Corporal Angua was so shocked she couldn't stop laughing, Carrot went on. I will have your money sent round directly, said Wazir. His expression turned vengeful again. He glared at Vimes. Books are unimportant at this time. We demand you release my countrymen now. Detritus, why the hell did you put them in the cells? said Vimes wearily. What else we got, sir? They're not locked in and they got clean blankets. There's your explanation, said Vimes. They're our guests. In the cells, said Wazir, relishing the word. They're free to go wherever they like, said Vimes. I'm sure they are now said Wazir, contriving to indicate that only his arrival had prevented officially sanctioned bloodshed. You can be sure the patrician will hear about this. He hears about everything else, said Vimes, but if they leave here, who is going to protect them? We are their fellow countrymen. How? Wazir almost stood to attention. By force of arms, if necessary. Oh, good, said Vimes. Then there'll be two mobs. Bingly, 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 beep. "'Damn!' Vimes slapped at his pocket. "'I don't want to know I haven't got any appointments.' "'You have one at 11 p.m., the rat's chamber at the palace,' said the disorganiser. "'Don't be stupid. Please yourself and shut up. I was just trying to help. Shut up!' Vimes turned back to the Clatchian bookseller. "'Mr. Wazir, if Gorif wants to leave with you, we won't stop him. Ah-ha!' 
You may well try. Vimes told himself that there was no reason at all why a Clatchian couldn't be a pompous little troublemaker, but he felt uneasy about it, like a man edging along the side of a very deep crevasse. Sergeant Colon? Yes, sir. Say to this, will you? Yes, sir. Diplomatically. Right, sir. Colon tapped the side of his nose. Is this politics, sir? Just, just go and fetch the gory family and they can... Vimes waved a hand vaguely. They could do whatever they like. He turned and walked up the stairs. Someone has to protect my people's rights, shouted Wazir. They heard Vimes stop halfway up the stairs. The board creaked under his weight for a second. Then he continued upwards and several of the watchmen started breathing again. Vimes shut his office door behind him. Politics. He sat down and scrabbled through the papers. It was much easier to think about crime. Give him a good, honest crime any time. He tried to shut out the outside world. Somebody had beheaded Snowy Slopes. That was a fact. You couldn't put it down to a shaving accident or unreasonably strong shampoo. And Snowy had attempted to shoot the prince. And so had Ozzy. But Ozzy only thought he was an assassin. Everyone else thought he was a weird little twerp who was as impressionable as wet clay. A lovely idea, though. You used a real murderer, a nice, quiet professional, and then you had, Vimes smiled grimly, someone else to take the fall. And if he hadn't taken a less metaphorical fall, the poor twisted little sod would have believed he was the murderer. And the watch was supposed to believe it was a Clatchian plot. Sand in their sandals. The nerve of it. Did they think he was stupid? He wished Fred had carefully swept up the sand, because he was damn well going to find out who'd put it there, and they were going to eat it. Someone wanted Vimes to chase Clatchians. The man on the burning roof, did he fit in? Did he have to fit in? What could Vimes recall? A man in a robe, his face hidden, and a voice of a man not just used to giving commands, Vimes was used to giving commands, but also used to having commands obeyed, whereas a member of the watch treated orders as suggestions. But some things didn't have to fit. That was where clues let you down. And the damned notebook. That was the oddest thing yet. So someone had carefully ripped out several pages after Snowy had written whatever he'd written. Someone bright enough to know the trick of looking at the pages underneath for faint impressions. So why not pinch the whole pad? It was all too complicated. But somewhere was the one thing that would make it simple, that would turn it all into sense. He flung down his pencil and wrenched open the door to the stairs. What the hell's all this noise? he yelled. Sergeant Colon was halfway up the stairs. It was Mr. Goriff and Mr. Wazir having a bit of what you might call an argy-bargy, sir. Someone set fire to someone else's country two hundred years ago, Carrot says. What? Just now? It's all clatchy to me, sir. Anyway, Wazir's gone off with his nose in a sling. Wazir comes from Smale, you see, said Carrot, and Mr. Goriff comes from El Harib, and the two countries only stopped fighting ten years ago. Religious differences. Run out of weapons, said Vimes. Ran out of rocks, sir. They ran out of weapons last century. Vimes shook his head. That always chews me up, he said. People killing one another just because their gods have squabbled. Oh, they've got the same god, sir. Apparently it's over a word in their holy book, sir. The El Haribians say it translates as God, and the Smailies say it's man. How can you mix them up? 
Well, there's only one tiny dot difference in the script, you see, and some people reckon it's only a bit of fly dirt in any case. Centuries of war because a fly crapped in the wrong place. It could have been worse, said Carrot. If it had been slightly to the left, the word would have been licorice. Vimes shook his head. Carrot was good at picking up this sort of thing, and I know how to ask for vindaloo, he thought. And it turns out that's just a Clatchian word, meaning mouth-scalding gristle for macho foreign idiots. I wish we understood more about Clatch, he said. Sergeant Colon tapped the side of his nose conspiratorially. Know the enemy, eh, sir? he said. Oh, I know the enemy, said Vimes. It's Clatchians I want to find out about. Commander Vimes? The watchman looked round. Vimes narrowed his eyes. You're one of Rust's men, aren't you? The young man saluted. Lieutenant Hornet, sir. He hesitated. Ah, uh, his lordship has sent me to ask you if you and your senior officers would be so good as to come to the palace at your convenience, sir. Really? Those were his words. The lieutenant decided that honesty was the only policy. In fact, he said, get Vimes and his mob up here right now, sir. Oh, he did, did he? said Vimes. Bingly, 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 beep, said a small triumphant voice from his pocket. The time is 11 p.m. precisely. The door opened before Nobby knocked, and a small stout woman glared out at him. Yes, I am, she snapped. Nobby stood with his hand still raised. Er, uh, are you Mrs. Cake, he said. Yes, but I don't hold with doing it except for money. Nobby's hand did not move. Er, uh, you can tell the future, right? said Nobby. They stared at one another. Then Mrs. Cake thumped her own ear a couple of times and blinked. Drat, left my precognition on again. Her gaze unfocused for a moment as she replayed the recent conversation in the privacy of her head. I think we're sorted out, she said. She looked at Nobby and sniffed. You'd better come in. Mind the carpet, it's just been washed. And I can only give you ten minutes because I've got cabbage boiling. She led Corporal Nobbs into her tiny front room. A lot of it was occupied by a round table covered with a green cloth. There was a crystal ball on the table, not very well covered by a pink-knitted lady in a crinoline dress. Mrs. Cake motioned Nobby to sit down. He obediently did so. A smell of cabbage drifted through the room. A bloke in the pub told me about you, Nobby mumbled. Said you do, uh, mediuming. Would you care to tell me your problem, said Mrs. Cake. She looked at Nobby again, and in a state of certainty that had nothing to do with precognition and everything to do with observation, added, That is, which of your problems do you want to know about? Nobby coughed. Er, uh, <clears throat> it's a bit, you know, uh, intimate like affairs of the heart sort of thing. Are women involved? said Mrs. Cake cautiously. Er, uh, I hope so. Uh, what else is there? Mrs. Cake visibly relaxed. I just want to know if I'm going to meet any, Nobby went on. I see. Mrs. Cake gave a kind of facial shrug. It wasn't up to her to tell people how to waste their money. Well, there's the tenpenny future, that's what you see. Then there's the ten-dollar future, that's what you get. Ten dollars? That's more than a week's pay. I'd better take the ten-penny one. A very wise choice, said Mrs. Cake. 
Give me your paw. Hand, said Nobby. That's what I said. Mrs Cake examined Nobby's outstretched palm while taking care not to touch it. Are you going to moan and roll your eyes and stuff, said Nobby, a man out to get his ten pennyworth. I don't have to take cheek, said Mrs Cake without looking up. That sort of... She peered closer and then gave Nobby a sharp look. Have you been playing with this hand? Pardon? Mrs Cake whipped the crinoline lady off the crystal and glared into the depths. After a while she shook her head. I don't know, I'm sure. Oh, well. She cleared her throat and spoke in a more sibyllic voice. Mr Nobbs, I see you surrounded by dusky ladies in a hot place. Looks a bit foreign to me. They're laughing and chatting with you. In fact, one of them's just handed you a drink. None of them are uh, shouting or anything, are they? said Nobby, mystified. Doesn't look like it, said Mrs Cake, equally fascinated. They seem quite happy. You can't see any uh, magnets. What are they? Dunno, Nobby admitted. I expect you'd know them if you saw them. Mrs Cake, despite a certain rigidity of character, couldn't help but be aware of a drift in Nobby's speculation. Some of the ladies look uh, nubile, she hinted. Oh, right, said Nobby, his expression not changing in any way. If you understand what I mean. Right, yes, uh, nubile, right. Mrs Cake gave up. Nobby counted out ten pennies. And that'll be soon, will it? said Nobby. Oh, yes, I can't see very far for tenpence. Happy young ladies, mused Nobby. Nubile, too. Definitely something to think about. After he'd gone, Mrs Cake went back to her crystal and sneaked a whole ten dollars' worth of precognition for her own curiosity and satisfaction, and laughed about it all afternoon. Vimes was only half surprised when the doors to the rat's chamber opened and there, sitting at the head of the table, was Lord Rust. The patrician wasn't there. He was half surprised. That is, at a certain shallow level, he thought, that's odd. I thought you couldn't budge the man with a siege weapon. But at a dark level, where the daylight seldom penetrated, he thought, of course, at a time like this, men like Rust rise to the top. It's like stirring a swamp with a stick. Really big bubbles are suddenly on the surface and there's a bad smell about everything. Nevertheless, he saluted and said, Lord Vetinari on his holidays, then. Lord Vetinari stepped down this evening, Vimes, said Lord Rust. Pro tem, of course, just for the duration of the emergency. Really? said Vimes. Yes, and I have to say that he anticipated a certain cynicism on your part, Commander, and therefore asked me to give you this letter. You will see that it is sealed with his seal. Vimes looked at the envelope. There was certainly the official seal in the wax, but... He met Lord Rust's gaze, and at least that suspicion faded. Rust wouldn't try a trick like that. Men like Rust had a moral code of sorts, and some things weren't honourable. You could own a street of crowded houses where people lived like cockroaches and the cockroaches lived like kings, and that was perfectly okay, but Rust would probably die before he'd descend to forgery. I see, sir, said Vimes. You wanted me? 
Commander Vimes, I must ask you to take the Clatchians resident in the city into custody. On what charge, sir? Commander, we are on the verge of war with Clatch. Surely you understand? No, sir. We are talking about spying, Commander. Sabotage, even, said Lord Rust. To be frank, the city is to be placed under martial law. Yes, sir. What kind of law is that, sir? said Vimes, staring straight ahead. You know very well, Vimes. Is it the kind where you shout stop before you fire, sir, or the other kind? Ah, I see. Rust stood up and leaned forward. It pleased you to be smart with Lord Vetinari, and for some reason he indulged you, he said. I, on the other hand, know your type. My type? It seems to me that the streets are full of crimes, Commander, unlicensed begging, public nuisances, but you seem to turn a blind eye. You seem to think you should have bigger ideas. But you are not required to have big ideas, Commander. You are a thief-taker, nothing more. Are you eyeballing me, Vimes? I was trying not to turn a blind eye, sir. You seem to feel, Vimes, that the law is some kind of big glowing light in the sky which is not subject to control. And you are wrong. The law is what we tell it to be. I'm not going to add, do you understand, because I know you understand, and I am not going to try and reason with you. I know a rank bad hat when I see one. Bad hat, said Vimes weakly. Commander Vimes, he said, I had hoped to avoid this. But the last few days point to a succession of astonishing judgmental errors on your part. The Prince Kufura was shot, and you seemed helpless to prevent this or find the criminal responsible. Mobs appear to run around the city unimpeded. I gather that one of your sergeants proposed to shoot innocent people in the head. And we have just heard that you took it upon yourself to arrest an innocent businessman and lock him in the cells... For no reason at all. Vimes heard Colon gasp, but it sounded a long way off. He could feel everything crumbling under him, but his mind seemed to be flying now, flapping through a pink sky where nothing mattered very much. Oh, I don't know about that, sir, he said. He was guilty of repeatedly being Clatchian, wasn't he? Don't you want me to do that to all of them? And if this was not enough... Rust went on. We are told, and in other circumstances I would find this very hard to believe, even of a counter-jumper like you, that earlier tonight, you, being quite unprovoked, assaulted two Clatchian guards, trespassed on Clatchian soil, entered the women's quarters, abducted two Clatchians from their beds, ordered the destruction of Clatchian property, and, well, frankly, acted quite disgracefully. What is the point of arguing, Vimes thought. Why play cards with a shaved deck? And yet... Two Clatchians, sir. It seems Prince Kufura has been kidnapped, Vimes. I find it hard to believe that even you would attempt that. But the Clatchians seem to be suggesting this. You were seen entering their property illegally, and you appear to have dragged a helpless lady from her bed. What have you got to say about that? It was on fire at the time, sir. Lieutenant Hornet stepped forward and whispered something. Lord Rust subsided a bit. 
All right. Very well. There were perhaps mitigating circumstances, but politically, it was a most ill-advised action, Vimes. I cannot pretend to know what has happened to the prince, but frankly, you seem to have taken a positive delight in making matters worse. Can you climb, Mr. Vimes? Vimes said nothing. The other man had been carrying something bulky over his shoulder. You are removed from authority, Commander, and the watch will come under the direct command of this council. Is that understood? Rust turned to Carrot. Captain Carrot, many of us here have heard good reports about you, and by due authority I hereby appoint you acting commander of the watch. Vimes shut his eyes. Carrot saluted smartly. No, sir. Vimes opened his eyes wide. Really? Rust stared at Carrot for a few moments and then gave a little shrug. Ah, well. Loyalty is a fine thing. Sergeant Colon? Sir, in the circumstances and since you are the most experienced non-commissioned officer and have an exemplar... and have... A military record, you will take command of the watch for the duration of the emergency. No, sir. That was an instruction, Sergeant. Beads of sweat began to form on Colon's brow. No, sir. Sergeant! You can put it where the sun does not shine, sir, said Colon desperately. Once again, Vimes saw Rust's milky blue stare. Rust never looked surprised, and since he knew that a mere sergeant would never dare offer cheeky defiance, he erased Sergeant Colon from the immediate universe. The gaze turned briefly to detritus. And he doesn't know how to speak to a troll, Vimes thought. And he was once again impressed in the same dark way by the manner in which Rust dealt with the problem. He dealt with it by making it not be there. Who is the senior corporal in the watch, Sir Samuel? That would be... Corporal Nobbs. The committee went into a huddle. There was a rush of whispering in which the words an absolute little tit could be heard several times. Finally, Rust looked up again. And the next in seniority? Ah, uh, let me see. That would be Corporal Strong in the arm, said Vimes. He felt oddly light-headed. Perhaps he is a man who can take orders. He's a dwarf, you idiot. Not a muscle moved on Rust's face. There was a clink as Vimes's badge was set neatly on the table. "'I don't have to take this,' said Vimes calmly. "'Oh, so you'd rather be a civilian, would you?' "'A watchman is a civilian, you inbred streak of piss.' Rust's brain erased the sounds that his ears could not possibly have heard. "'And the keys to the armoury, Sir Samuel,' he said. They jangled as they landed on the table. And do the rest of you have any empty gestures to make? said Lord Rust. Sergeant Colon took his grimy badge out of his pocket and was a little disappointed that it didn't make a defiant tinkle when he threw it on the table, but instead bounced and smashed the water jug. I got my badge carved on my arm, Detritus rumbled. Someone can try and take it off if they likes. Carrot laid his badge down very carefully. Rust raised his eyebrows. You too, Captain. Yes, sir. I would have thought that you, at least. He stopped and looked up in annoyance as the doors opened. 
A couple of the palace guards ran in with a group of Clachians behind them. The council got to their feet in a hurry. Vimes recognised the Clachian in the centre of the group. He'd seen him around at official functions, and if it hadn't been for the fact that the man was a Clachian, would have marked him down as a shifty piece of work. Who's he? he whispered to Carrot. Prince Caliph. He's the deputy ambassador. Another prince? The man came to a halt in front of the table, glanced at Vimes with no show of recognition, and bowed to Lord Rust. Prince Caliph, said Lord Rust, your arrival is unannounced, but nevertheless... I have grave news, my lord. Even in his stunned state, a part of Vimes registered that the voice was different. Kufura had learned his second language on the street, but this one had had tutors. At a time like this, what news isn't? said Rust. There have been developments on the new land, regrettable incidents, and indeed in Ankh-Morpork too. He glanced at Vimes again, although here, I must say, reports are confused. Lord Rust, I have to tell you, we are technically at war. Technically at war? said Vimes. I'm afraid events are carrying us forward, said Caliph. The situation is delicate. They know they're going to fight, Vimes thought. This is just like the sort of a dance where you hang around looking at your partner. I must tell you that you are being given twelve hours to remove all your citizens from Leshp, said Caliph. If that is done, matters will be happily resolved for the present. Our response is that you have twelve hours to quit Leshp, said Rust. If that is not done, then we will take... Steps. Caliph bowed slightly. We understand one another. A formal document will be with you shortly, and no doubt we will be receiving one from you. Indeed. Here, hang on, you can't just... Vimes began. Sir Samuel, you are no longer commander of the watch, and you have no place at these proceedings, said Rust sharply. He turned back to the prince. It is unfortunate that things have come to this, he said stiffly. Indeed, but there comes a time when words are no longer sufficient. I must agree with you, and then it is time to test one's strength. Vimes stared in fascinated horror from one face to the other. We will, of course, allow you time to quit your embassy, such of it as remains. So kind, and of course we will extend to you the same courtesy. Caliph bowed slightly. So did Rust. After all, just because our countries are at war is no reason why we should not respect one another as friends, said Lord Rust. What? Yes, it bloody well is, said Vimes. I can't believe this. You can't just stand there. Good grief, what happened to diplomacy? War, Vimes, is a continuation of diplomacy by other means, said Lord Rust. As you would know if you were really a gentleman. And you Clatchians are as bad, Vimes went on. It's that green mouldy mutton Jenkins sells. You've all got foaming sheep disease. You can't just stand there and... Sir Samuel, you are, as you are at pains to point out, a civilian, said Rust. As such, you have no place here. Vimes didn't bother with a salute, but just turned away and walked out of the room. The rest of the squad followed him in silence back to Pseudopolis Yard.